0: You don't learn while you're talking. I would much rather listen and enjoy learning from a network of honest friends who will be critical, self-critical, critical of me. I think a healthy partnership is one where people are peers, they all have the same vote on a way forward. And the successes I've been able to enjoy, the amazing entrepreneurs I've worked with, that's all been because of feedback from others.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, Operating Partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into GRIP. Every week we explore how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. Today, we are replaying an interview with one of my favorite guests, John Doerr, Chairman of Kleiner Perkins, who was episode 100 back in August of 2022. Happy holidays from all of us, and we'll be back next week with new episodes. As always, if you're a fan of the show, thank you so much and please subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. It is surreal for me, I gotta be honest, to do this as episode 100. When the marketing team and I sat down and we said, who do we want? It was actually a pretty unanimous and quick decision that you were the guy. So thank you for doing this, and it's an honor and a privilege to be able to record our first triple digit episode with you. Thank you. Well, it's
0: my privilege to be here. Let's have some fun.
1: Yeah, let's do it. So look, John, I start all these things the same way, which is that I'm going to read your background back to you. If I screw up, let me know. And then we can use that as kind of a launching off point to kick this thing off. Is that okay? It's
0: okay. Extra points for humor. (laughs) Okay.
1: (laughs) Careful what you wish for. All right. So records show me that you started at Rice University, which is where you got your BS in um, electrical engineering. Then in 1976, you went to Harvard to get your MBA Along the way, you spent four or five years at Intel, first as an engineer, then in marketing and sales ish. Is that right? That's right. It's referred to as RAS University. Right. right, right. <laughs> then in nineteen eighty you joined what was at the time called Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. You know, I was looking back through the records, almost ninety investments, you personally, does that feel about right to you? I have no idea. Yeah, it's about 90, All in right. case you're wondering. It's about 90, which feels like a lot. You were the Series A investor of Amazon and Google. You have were the early, early investor of Intuit, AOL, Netscape, Twitter, Uber, DoorDash, Compaq Sun. The list goes on. It's absolutely incredible. You've written two books. Can I promote them? Please. Yes. Well, well, actually, I didn't write them. I interviewed people
0: for them. I'm an engineer, and I have to fight with words to get them right. And In both of these cases, the books are full of stories of other people. The Measure What Matters book is about goal setting. Mm-hmm. And so I interview everyone from Bill Gates to Sindar Pishai about how they set, go- and Bono on how they set goals for nonprofits and advocacy organizations that want to do big things to change the world. That's Measure What Matters. Mm-hmm. And it really takes Andy Grove's goal system of OKRs, objectives and key results and I think makes them accessible and powerful. And it grew out of an experience I had of taking Andy Grove's course materials, his literal slide deck, everywhere I went when I left Intel in giving his course on how you set goals to achieve excellence. That's measure what matters. Then I was growing increasingly concerned, fearful, honestly, about the climate crisis. And Brian Pashansaram, my amazing partner and chief of staff, said, what if we put together a set of not goals, in fact, climate has long had plenty of goals, but a plan where the numbers and key results, the tasks, they're all specific, time-bound, measurable, and they would add up to being an action plan for solving the climate crisis. And so we published that book just before the COP, the meeting of the Conference of Parties in Glasgow last year. And it's 10 big hairy ass goals and 55 key results, all measurable, all time bound. And I've been doing a a lot of discussion, promotion of that body of work. How's that book doing? Jim Collins, who's one of my heroes, said, John, what you're looking for is the right readership, not the most readership. And so this is a book that's written for the leader inside of everyone. And as of this conversation, I think we've sold about 60,000 copies of it in the U.S. Incredible. The climate crisis is not necessarily an uplifting sort of message, (laughs) but a a plan to deal with it is quite positive. I just say that in contrast to Measure What Matters, which has been out four years now and has sold a million copies, 400,000 of which are in China, of all things. Huh.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah. I have kind of an awkward question to kick things off for you. You went to Harvard for your MBA. You went to Rice for your undergrad. And you just donated $1.1 billion to Stanford. (laughs) And they just erected the Door School of Sustainability, correct? In your honor. Was Harvard pissed? (laughs) Did they call you and say, John, come on, show us some love here.
0: The world needs, like the world has lots of great medical schools. The world needs lots of climate and sustainability schools. And I think Harvard's doing amazing work. So is my alma mater, Rice, which I've been a donor to for quite some time. But I looked at the scope of what Stanford proposed to do Mm -hmm. and the need that society has for urgent action. And Stanford had spent two years building a consensus, wasn't starting from zero, has 90 faculty working in the area right now. And they built a plan, which I did deep diligence on. To add 60 faculty, thousands of postdocs and graduate students. How many faculty? 60 faculty to the wow. 90 that they have. So they'll have 150 working in this field. And the other thing that they'll bring is the Stanford ecosystem of entrepreneurs to climate. The word on the campus is that climate science could be the new computer science. And so the undergraduate community there is just electrified, literally, <laughs> at the notion that they can, for all the right reasons, do work that'll make a difference in matter in their lives. So they're going to bring the full force of one of the world's great universities, Stanford, behind solving the climate crisis.
1: And I'm all in for that. If you were given the choice today, you can start as a venture capitalist at Kleiner Perkins. Today, knowing what you know about the opportunity ahead of climate, or knowing what you've known about the rise of the last 20 to 30 years of the internet, Which opportunity as an investor excites you more?
0: I think solving the climate crisis is by far the larger economic opportunity. In the early days of the internet, I kicked up something of a firestorm by declaring that the internet had been underhyped, and I I took a lot of crap for saying that. But I I think we're going to find that both the opportunity and the imperative that comes with the climate
1: crisis is larger than the internet. Is it true that your first ever job, correct me if I'm wrong, was flipping burgers? I did a little bit of intel with the team here. And is that true? What was your first job where you got a paycheck? My first paycheck was at Burger Chef. (laughs) You're laughing. That's incredible. Well, my first ever job was at Subway. I was a sandwich artisan. And I'm so proud that I put it on my LinkedIn.
0: (laughs) Well, what I've observed is that Americans love their hamburgers, and so our passion for beef is part of the world we live in and some change that we've got to embrace in our march to a sustainable planet. My brothers and sisters give me a very hard time about this. At at the end of my summer assignment there, the manager of the store said, I think you'd make good hamburger material. (laughs) He wanted me to go to their management school. There's a management school, a Burger Chef management school. There was at the time. I'm not sure Burger Chef is still around.
1: <laughs> I've never heard of it, so I don't I, think so. I think it's failed. Maybe if you would gone into the management school, we could have turned their fortunes around. That's so funny. And was this in Missouri? Yes. Previous to you moving out to the West Coast. Yeah, it was on Manchester Road in St. Louis. When you moved out to the West Coast, correct me if I'm wrong, but your father had started a business in the Midwest. Is that right? My dad's
0: my hero, and he was an engineer, an entrepreneur. He loved selling. He loved people. He's a great dad. And he got permission from his employer, which was a manufacturer of pumps. He was a mechanical engineer to start a parallel business with his friends in his spare time, which was a distributor of air compressors. And they built that business and then another together and ultimately I guess the best way for me to describe it is Lou Dore was an entrepreneur's entrepreneur and he made me always want to be an entrepreneur who would be successful by helping teams of people solve problems. And so I brought that desire to Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. the desire to start a company and figured that venture capital had something to do with starting companies. So in 1970. Six, I tried to apprentice myself to any venture capital firm that would hire me. And I talked to them all, and they all turned me down. Including Kleiner Perkins. Yes, they, Kleiner Perkins turned me down. Brooke Byers agreed to take a meeting with me if I would run with him around the Stanford track, which I did so I could get time from Brooke. These were thoughtful, generous people with their time, and I didn't know anything about building businesses, and I certainly didn't know anything about venture capital. Their advice was really very good. Simply put, they said, John- Go get a real job. And one of them, Dick Kramlick, who subsequently was with NEA at the time, he was a partner with Arthur Rock, mm-hmm. referred me to a new chip company startup they'd funded by the name of Intel. He said, you ought to apply for a job there. So I cold called my way into the highest ranking executive there I could get on the phone, whose name was Bill Davidow. And he heard that I like to program computers. And so I got a summer job writing benchmarks for Intel microprocessors and loved it. It was amazing. This was the mid seventies and Intel had just invented the 8-bit microprocessor which Bill Gates and Paul Allen had written a basic interpreter for. We saw the first personal computers and the microprocessor was the common denominator. It was the engine behind all kinds of innovation. So after my amazing summer internship at Intel, I returned there and worked there full-time for. I guess, four or five years.
1: I've also heard that one of the decisions for you to go to Intel and to move West was that your girlfriend at the time dumped you and was on the West Coast. Is that true? This is a really interesting story. It's largely
0: true. It turns out that I had been pretty persistent. And if I were her, I'd want to dump me also, which she did. And so she was two years behind me at Rice. I'd left my car with her as an example, as a, a kind of marker. Like, don't piss
1: on my fire hydrant type thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She left my car in her parents' driveway in Denver without telling them or me where she was going. I knew she was in Silicon Valley. So I came out here with no job, no place to live, no girlfriend, $55 in my pocket, and found a garage apartment on the Stanford campus and began job hunting, looking for a place to work. And I got this job at Intel in you know, the most amazing thing happened. I arrived at work and guess whose office was down the hall from mine?
1: I'm going to guess her name's Anne.
0: Anne Holland. And she, she was not amused. <laughs> Seeing John Doerr was not part of her plan for the summer. But we put the relationship back together. I've known each other 50 years now. I've been married more than 40
1: years. How old were you when you moved into that office at Intel? I was in my 20s. It's incredible. That's incredible. Silicon Valley has been really very good for me. No doubt. I don't know if this is well known, but I've heard that you are an exceptional. It went You went from engineering to marketing to then sales. I heard you moved to Chicago for a little while to go get a bit of sales chops. Again, tell me if I'm rewriting history and this is incorrect here. No, that's all true. I actually did the same thing. I moved to Chicago for a sales job.
0: Chicago's a great city. Underrated. Totally. I would live there in a heartbeat. It's a city that really so you get a works. a summer house
1: together there. It's <laughs> unbelievable. And the lake, I heard you were a damn good rep. I love
0: selling because selling microprocessors was basically solving people's problems. What comes to mind right now is something that one of the entrepreneurs I work with, Jeannie Kim, says, and she says, you know, if you're going to be a founder of an enterprise solutions company, you ought to love selling. The CEO is the best possible sales leader, and I consider it to be a really high calling. I think it's looked down on by far too many organizations, and wrongly so. The approach to selling isn't like we're flogging breakfast cereal. You solve a problem, you'll get an order. It's a kind of consultative, service,
1: mission-oriented activity. I completely agree. I think that ethos that you've instilled in the DNA of Kleiner Perkins is probably why I have a job here and probably why there's a team of folks that help us enable our portfolios to do great problem solving right, on behalf of customers. Solve a problem, you get an order. Yeah. Then you do five years at Intel-ish and you go back to Kleiner Perkins? Well, I'd n- never been at Kleiner Perkins right. except around
0: the track with Brooke, right, right? Do you go back to Brooke? Actually, a classmate of mine had interviewed for a job at Kleiner Perkins and wasn't quite the right fit. And so he said to me, a friend, John, you ought to interview for this position at Kleiner Perkins. They want to hire a gopher. They want an associate, somebody who's going to read business plans and carry bags and just do whatever needs to be done. And I'd heard of Kleiner Perkins, but didn't really know it very well. And I had the most amazing interview for a job with Eugene Kleiner, Tom Perkins, Frank Caulfield, and Brooke Byers, and I got the job. I wasn't the first Gopher they'd hired. They'd had several other associates. Bob Swanson, for example, was a young associate at Kleiner Perkins, and he wrote the business plan for Genentech while he was there. Jack Lustenau and Jim Treibig wrote the business plan for Tandem. And that's because when Tom and Eugene hung up their shingle with $15 million of capital in 1972, 50 years ago to this broadcast, the plans they got were terrible. They were junk. They made 13 investments and 11 of the 13 failed. <laughs> I'm reminded of Frank Caulfield. who's a great partner. He said, you know, John, that portfolio was charitably described as two peaches in a bucket of piss. <laughs> but Tom and Eugene were not typical venture capitalists. They were engineers, they were operators, they had proven skills in building technology companies. And so they could see the potential and the pitfalls in ideas like Genentech and Tandem and were fearless about putting a lot of capital into them in those days without a big syndicate to get the job done.
1: Is it also true that you cut a deal with the firm to say, I will join and be the gopher, however, I want your support if I go do a startup. I wanna go build a company. Is that right?
0: That's pretty right. It was a little tougher than that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The negotiation didn't go down so smooth.
0: No, I didn't wanna be in venture capital. I actually was passionate to start a company with my friends, and so I only accepted the Kleiner job with the assurances that they'd back me when I found a startup, and they did. Did you split time 50-50? I kept working, trying to do a good job as a gopher, but Mm -hmm. when I met Carver Mead from Caltech and we started together Silicon Compilers, that was that first startup. It took me about a year or two to find that opportunity. Brooke Byers joined the board. He mentored me along the way, and we built a leading edge VLSI CAD software system. Ultimately, I found somebody better than me to run it, my boss's boss from Intel, and we sold it in the end to mentor graphics for $70 million. That was a lot of money in those days. So we built the world's first BitBlit raster-op graphics chip for the Sun workstation. The first VLSI ethernet controller, which went in the 3Com ethernet cards. We built a whole micro Vax. We put the whole Vax instruction set in three chips. Digital equipment had had a team that had been working on that for more than five years. And that was great. I loved building that company and it wasn't the last, but I took Kleiner at their word because they had backed other young partners in building great new companies.
1: And is it true, again, tell me true or false here, that at some point there was still an allure of entrepreneurship for you? I assume from your father, Lou, that was just in you. And that was a calling there that you wanted to continue to pursue and from what I've heard, you and your, your wife, Anne, had a conversation, ready to start a family. And you had to decide, do you want to do one or the other? Is that right? That's true. Here's a good way to describe that. I think that
0: all along, Kleiner has encouraged its partners to be curious and to read and learn. And you know, we had had a sabbatical program after four or five years or certainly by 10 years, you could take a year off and go do something different with the assurance that you could return. And so I spent one sabbatical working at Sun Microsystems with the management team. I was in charge of what we called the desktop top computer efforts, making the Spark microprocessor, the Spark station, and trying to have Sun's version of Unix be popular as an operating system with a graphical user interface. I found myself managing managers of managers, leading a thousand-person organization. And fortunately, I'd had Andy Grove's training to help me along with it. But I loved working at Sun and working with those co-founders. And I was doing that while still trying to keep up my responsibilities to Kleiner on this quasi-sabbatical. It was too much. And Anne called the question. She said, are we going to have a family or not? If so, you need to choose. You can't do both Sun and... And Kleiner and family. And so we got somebody better than me to take over that job at Sun.
1: And at the time, Kleiner was raising what was Venture Capital's first flagship fund. I think it was $150 million, which was unheard of. It was, in those days, a mega fund, yes. And so you joined the firm, and that was in 1980-ish, officially? Officially in 1980. They had raised KPCB-2
0: which was a $55 million fund. I wasn't a general
1: partner of that fund, but became one along the way to KPCB3. And so you were investing actively out of KPCB3 officially when you joined?
0: Well, and also, too, I was advocating investments. The most amazing thing happened. Steve Jobs invented the personal computer. I think most people will credit him with that. But then IBM really popularized it with the Intel microprocessor. And... Some executives I really admired a lot, Ben Rosen and LJ7 had a team out of TI that wanted to make hard disk drives for personal computers. And they didn't like that idea very much, but they also had an idea to make a luggable version of the IBM PC, a sewing machine, like 35 pound, nine inch screen personal computer. And the amazing thing about this computer was It was 100% compatible with the IBM machine. It entered the market when IBM couldn't itself make enough of them. It didn't do violence. It didn't compete with the IBM desktop machines. It was complementary. And so the IBM distribution channel was open to Compaq. And the man who set up that channel, Sparky Sparks, signed up all the IBM dealers. And so to this day, Compaq Computer, which... Ben Rosen deserves credit for sponsoring, and, and I invested alongside of, had $117 million of revenues. That's a record of first year revenues for any business to this point in time. And it's a measure, I think, of getting the product right, the market right, the team right. And it was the first tsunami, the first of three really major waves of tech disruption. And look at me, how lucky can you get? I'm a kid who understands microprocessors, how they're gonna be used, worked out yeah, and they're a common denominator in, in, in a whole revolution
1: of how we live work and play was that your first big hit you'd say was that the first deal that you did that you knew was a great investment yes it was epic i have heard that people asked you when you were a gopher at the time how do you like the job john And I've heard you say again, tell me if this is not true, but you said, I can't believe they pay me to do this. (laughs) This is unbelievable. I love this job. Is that true?
0: That's true. That was my reaction when I was made the job offer. I had this wonderful interview with Eugene and Tom and Frank and Brooke, which I haven't told you about, but they were a very effective, diverse partnership. And they'd asked me a question. And I'd try to get an answer in edgewise because somebody would build on that question and on, t- on top of the other one. So I think I got through
1: their interviewing process easily. They would finish each other's sentences. Yep. After Compaq, what other early wins are stark in your memory before, I guess it would be KPCB 6, when your probably most notorious investments start to take hold?
0: Well, there was a first wave, I talked about these tsunamis, Mm -hmm. of microprocessor-related investments, Mm -hmm. starting in 1980, and they were enabled, all of them, by the microchip and by Moore's Law. And Moore's Law, as an aside, is fantastic. We kind of take for granted, when we admire all the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, that what we've had working for us as Tailwinds is a 40% reduction every year in the cost of the basic stuff we're doing every two years. Things are 100% cheaper. And that's been going on for 50 years. If that was true in any other part of the economy, like healthcare, for example, it'd be a far, far different world. So, in that first wave of companies, there was Compaq. There was Lotus with 123. That was the hardware and the software. There were other PC related software companies like Intuit or Symantec. I won't recall them all, but there was a great Sun and AOL were in there too, right? Yes, you're exactly right. Thanks,
1: your memory's better than mine. Well, I had Steve Case on the show a few weeks ago, and I have Scott Cook from Intuit coming up in a week or two, so I have a, I have a benefit of... Those are amazing entrepreneurs, and they are real
0: pioneers. The second wave came about 13 years later. These tsunamis come in 13-year intervals. And so around 1993, 1994, we saw the first web browser. That's Netscape. Jim Barkdale, Mark Andreessen. It's the internet era. That was the beginning of an amazingly productive, disruptive, exciting time of growth. And the investments that Kleiner was privileged to make started with Netscape, but they included Amazon.com in 1997, and or 96, I guess I met Jeff. In 99, I met two Stanford PhD computer dropouts Larry Page Sergey Brin they had a better 18th search engine 18th it was the 18th and that wave starting around 94 persisted till for 13 years till about 2006 2007 what happened then well there were two waves monster waves that collided together and they were the smartphone the iPhone and the cloud That's when VMware first offered its cloud computing solution, software virtualization of cloud resources. So 13 years after that brings us roughly to today, right?
1: Which is today, about 30 minutes ago, when you said that all of those waves that you've seen, you'd still rather have the wave that's coming up.
0: Well, the next wave is AI. And I think there's broad agreement about that. Mm -hmm. But we're still in the very, very early days of AI and what its impact will be. Do you think of climate as a wave or no? Climate isn't a tech wave. Sure. It's a monster market displacement. There's two kinds of markets that you can go after at scale. One of which are the new markets for a service that doesn't exist at all. And Google would be a good example of that. The Uh, Other kind of market is where you take on large incumbents and you displace them. That would be an Amazon approach to a marketplace. For us to build the new clean economy, it's gonna be a 40 year effort and we'll be investing roughly $4 trillion a year for every one of those years in how we live, how we move, make, feed. We can't base a sustainable economy on fossil fuels and we can't do it with the infrastructure and solutions that propelled us to where we stand today. This is a, an amazing opportunity and an existential challenge. It's the thing it's most like, I think, is what it would have been like to win World War II. Remember for four years, the allies, <laughs> Britain, the US, stopped making cars, stopped making appliances. We took all that productive capacity and started making fighter aircraft and battleships and guns and boats, and we won. We prevailed over deeply anti-democratic forces. We have a similar in scope challenge
1: to get the world on a sustainable path. It reminds me of my conversation with Steve Case, who he talks about as the third wave. And if I were to summarize it, it basically all of the infrastructure, all of the groundwork that you and him and the entrepreneurs that built the internet, that built the applications on top of the internet, are now going to start to collide with the real world. And his thesis is that the collision points won't necessarily happen only in Silicon Valley, like they may be used to. If it's going to be in healthcare, then maybe you should be closer to UHG in Minnesota because the partnerships are going to matter more. And if it's going to be in fossil fuels, then maybe you should be closer to the oil and gas companies in Texas. Whatever it is, that's what he describes as the third wave when the physical world starts to meet the digital in a meaningful way.
0: Regis McKenna, do you know him? The famous marketing advisor to Steve Jobs and one-time partner of Kleiner Perkins coined a phrase that I think is particularly true. And he said, Silicon Valley is not a couple of zip codes in California. It's a state of mind it can be everywhere, it can be for everyone. But the concentration of great universities and great talent and entrepreneurial role models and capital that we have in Silicon Valley remains a national advantage. In fact, I'm going to say an advantage for the world. America is unique and ahead in its willingness to embrace risk, to accept and learn from failure, and to try again. We're going to need every ounce of entrepreneurial energy that we can apply to building this new, sustainable, clean economy.
1: In 96, seven, I think you said you met Jeff Bezos? Yeah. How did you meet him? A friend of mine, Bill Campbell, had heard that
0: Amazon was raising money and that they wanted Kleiner to invest and set up for me to meet Leslie Koch, who was their, at the time, vice president of marketing. She'd come down to Silicon Valley to interview marketing talent from Stanford Business School for Amazon. And we had a late dinner at Ilfernaio. I th- mm-hmm. think it was at nine or 10 o'clock. And two or three days later, I was on an airplane up in Seattle to visit Jeff and McKenzie in their two-story loft in a rather seedy part of Seattle opposite the Free Needle Clinic. And Jeff came bounding down from the second floor of the loft with his uproarious laugh and, Guffa, and he and I just hit it off. I mean, we were both computer science engineers, nerdish geeks. And one of the first things J- Jubin that I try to figure out is would I mind getting in trouble with a particular entrepreneur because no matter how great these ventures look from the outside if you peel the lid off the can, it's not just spaghetti, there's worms inside there too. It
1: all <laughs> seem like a little like a loosely held disasters as soon as you take the lid off.
0: Right. And I figured out in that very first visit, I'd love getting into trouble with Jeff Bezos, that he was a survivor. He was a prime mover behind big disruptive changes. And I knew then that we wanted to invest. Was he at that dinner?
1: No. At El Fernayo? No. This was the VP of marketing. You all were figuring each other out. Then you went up to see Jeff. Yep. There has been books, literally books and movies written about this. So I'd rather just hear it from the source. How long did it take before you knew that you wanted to invest?
0: When I met Jeff. As soon as you met him. That visit. He took me into the distribution center for Amazon. Which, which was just books at the time. It was definitely just books at the time. And actually it was no books. <laughs> what we do is we'd take an order for a book. We'd turn around and place that order with Ingram Micro D, which had a book distribution center in Portland. It wasn't even in Washington. They'd be trucked overnight to the Amazon distribution center. Which started on the concrete floor in the back of the office, but was upgraded to desks from Home Depot on sawhorses. And so we'd mix and match the books. Jeff took me through there, showed me what people were buying at the time. They were, it's largely a geeky audience of males. They would buy a book about JavaScript or some programming language. And then we'd ship the book out and bill the customer, collect on their credit card at the time it was shipped, and pay Ingram D 70 days later. So there was a tremendous, virtuous, positive cash cycle there. And as long as your rate of growth exceeds your rate of return on the incremental investment in the business, you'll be consuming cash. So Jeff raised $8 million from Kleiner, I think for about 15% of the company and never looked
1: back. I was reading an article from the deep archives of the early days of Kleiner, and someone characterized the partnership and the firm in this way. All sport the, in quotes, Kleiner belt, a two-way pager and cellular phone strapped around their waists, making them accessible to entrepreneurs day and night. And when I read that, I just imagined you, and it harkened me back to probably the time period between dinner And going up to Seattle to see Jeff and then making that decision. I imagine that was fairly compressed.
0: Things were moving fast. Within a year of when we invested in Amazon, I believe Amazon went public. So Jeff's mantra was get big fast.
1: And he did. And they went public in 97. And isn't that also the same year when he wrote the famous shareholder letter that started with ouch? or is that after that, is that a couple of years after when the letter starts, ouch. It's been a brutal year for many in the capital markets and certainly for Amazon shareholders. I think it was actually amazon.com shareholders is how they described internet companies. As of this writing, our shares are down more than 80% from when I wrote you last year. That would have been the second shareholder letter. Second shareholder, okay. not,
0: Not the first one.
1: What was that board meeting like? Once you invested, it's working, you go public, you want to go get in trouble with this guy, you found trouble. How
0: was that board meeting? I don't recall the board meeting. What I do remember is that Jeff was very clear in his first letter that Amazon was not going to be an ordinary company. It would take a very long view of its opportunity and its business. And he wanted investors to be put on notice. He wanted to find the right investors who would believe in a company that took all of its profits, all of its free cash flow, and reinvested it In new opportunities and there was a brilliant wall street investor bill miller i'll remember that he spoke at one of our board meetings and made a fortune billions of dollars investing long in amazon at a time when there was deep skepticism on wall street i remember there was an analyst ravi with Lehman brothers who inaccurately forecasted when amazon would go bankrupt and he convened a monthly meeting of analysts to trade notes on that and those were strong difficult headwinds that Jeff and the team fought their way through. There was one really critical financing after we were public that was a European convertible junk bond debt deal. First time that had ever been done for a tech company. I think it was more than a billion dollars and that was crucial because we had in an effort to get big fast over expanded and needed to lower expenses and
1: focus our resources, but I don't think anybody ever caught up to Amazon. I don't think so. Was there any doubts at the time about Jeff's leadership? No. I guess I don't doubt that you had no doubts, but was there doubts from others? I think in the external investor Mm. community there was, but... I have one more question on the Amazon stuff, and then I'd love to move to Google if that's okay with you. Sure. The Prime story with Bing. I have to know how much of this is true and not, uh, the way that it was told to me was that you're on a bike ride, tell me. Well, success has many fathers here, and
0: so I'm sure Bing and maybe others would be uncomfortable with my version of this, and maybe I only saw a part of it. But with all those caveats, I was really keen to assist Jeff in building an amazing board of directors. And so he started out with Tom Allberg, who was a noted Seattle investor, lawyer operator on the board. I was really impressed with Patty Stonecipher, who had run consumer businesses for Microsoft and then ran the Gates Foundation. And Patty agreed to join the board. She'd left Microsoft. I thought that Bing Gordon could make a really great board member. And Bing was, I believe he was then a partner of mine at Kleiner. We had backed him. He'd been an early co-founder of Electronic Arts. I was bike riding with Bing up in Hutter Park here in Woodside. And he said to me, without prompting, he said, you know, John, Amazon really needs a loyalty program. There ought to be an Amazon Platinum or a kind of service that distinguishes the experience that people have when they get something from Amazon. It's like Christmas, it's like a gift. And we ought to encourage that kind of giving. I I thought, wow, those are big and bold ideas. Bing, you've got to meet Jeff. Jeff, you've got to take a meeting with Bing. I connected the two of them. Bing flew up for what was supposed to be an hour-long appointment, and it went on for several hours. And I recall from my bike ride asking Bing what he would call this service, and he picked out the name then, among others, of Amazon Prime. So I'm sure there's other contributors to it, but My memory is that Bing is one and an important one, and it's turned out to be the most successful loyalty service
1: ever for any kind of organized commerce or activity. That's absolutely incredible. In 99, you meet Larry and Sergey. Is that right? Yep. Where'd you meet them?
0: I think I met them in my office. Did Ron Conway introduce you guys? He probably recommended that they come to see Mm -hmm. me, but it was Andy Bechtelsheim who'd written them their first check for $50,000, who I'd backed at Sun. And Ram Sriram, do you know Ram? I know the name. An alumnus of Amazon. He helped orchestrate their fundraise, and they had decided that they wanted to do something that didn't happen very often, and that's to get Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia to both back their internet startup. And so I'll never forget my first meeting with Larry and Sergey. They came in to see me with a very thin pitch deck. In fact, we could append it as a resource to this podcast. It was 20 pages or so. Only two or three of those pages had numbers on it. They knew they weren't disclosing much information. They added cartoons to it to make their point. But I asked Larry, so how big is this going to be? And without missing a beat, he said, $10 And I said, surely you mean market cap? And he said, no, John, I mean revenues. You have no idea how crummy search is today, how important it is in people's lives, and how much we're going to be able to improve it over time. I about fell out of my chair, but they had evidence, which was they were serving searches out of their dorm room at Stanford they were bringing the Stanford network to its knees. So they were being thrown off the campus and they raised $24 million from us and from Sequoia. We, I wrote the biggest check I ever had, $12.8 million for 13% of the company. I think it was pretty easy to decide. I wouldn't mind getting in trouble with those guys. And so they built an amazing company.
1: Okay, but how bad did you not want to split that deal? Out of pride and healthy competition with, our neighbors next door that we can kind of see from this conference room.
0: (laughs) So I really wanted to work with Mike Moritz on this investment. And in the process of our two firms negotiating with the founders, the founders asked my advice and I said, let's do this together. I think we built a better, stronger company as co-investors than either of us would have alone.
1: And as the world turns, you and Mike have teamed up again recently for another investment.
0: Yeah, the latest investment we've sponsored is something called Watershed. Love that company. It's a great company. I love it. If you want to make a difference in the climate crisis with the team of co-founders out of Stripe, you should go find a way to get on the team at Watershed. This move to build a new clean economy for the future is going to require services and software and innovation and new markets and new marketplaces. You know, Lorene Powell Jobs says in my book, Speed and Scale, we should look on the climate crisis as the greatest opportunity that humankind has
1: ever had. Can I um harken back to Google for one second? Sure. What amazed me as I was reading the archives was that you, upon investment, had to talk to Larry and Sergey and say, I think we need a CEO. We said that at the time,
0: when we invested, and they agreed that we ought to. Agreed-ish. Well, I would say they agreed and then they changed their mind, (laughs) which is their prerogative. We weren't going to hire a CEO without them. Of course. But honestly, there was a lot to building a business that they weren't interested in and didn't believe in even. And so we set out to do a search for a great CEO. They took their time to do it. It was an important decision. Maybe they were reluctant about doing it. I set up for them to interview with a lot of founders who had made that decision, both ways that they'd stayed
1: CEO or they hired a new one. Like a Bezos and talking to them.
0: Yeah, I think they talked, I arranged for them to talk to Andy Grove, to Steve Jobs, to Jeff Bezos, to Bill Campbell, Scott Cook. I mean, they did a thorough job of that. And they came back and they said to me, John, we've got some good news and some bad news for you. I said, really, well, I'm an optimist. Tell me the good news first. They said, you know, we think we agree with you that we should hire a great CEO to help us build this business. I said, okay, so what's the bad news? They said, there's only one person in the world who we think is qualified to be our CEO. And I said, so who's that? And they said, Steve Jobs. I said, guys, right now, Steve is the CEO of Pixar. He's the interim CEO of Apple. We're just not going to be able to get him to be the CEO of Google, at least not now. So what we did then is an organized search, and we found this amazing executive, Mm -hmm. Eric Schmidt, who had the same PhD computer science thesis advisor that they did. And Eric, who I had recruited to Sun Microsystems and at the time was the chairman of Novell and CEO, joined the board of Google as he worked to sell Novell and then come on board as the CEO. And he saw the brilliance and the power of the founders and the entrepreneurs. I think their original titles was, Larry was president of technology and Sergey was president of products and Eric was the CEO, but Eric was really their co-pilot as the three of them propelled this Google rocket ship to records that we've never seen before. In his 10 or so years as hired CEO, Eric helped the team generate $640 billion of shareholder value. There's no other hired CEO who's... It's incredible. And we also had a plan along the way to set it up so that Larry could be the successor CEO if he chose to do that. And that's exactly what happened. I'm very proud of the fact that I think the Google founders and board together have made a couple of really successful transitions in leadership, from Larry and Sergey as founders to adding Eric, mm-hmm. then back to Larry as the CEO, then Sundar Pichai, who's the CEO today of Alphabet. And that's the one thing a board really ought to try to help get right.
1: Well, they built maybe the greatest business ever. You know, And, and Amazon are in a pretty close race right now. I have a question for you that we were talking about Google, where they said, We have one CEO that we want. Right. And they said, Steve. Did you call Steve to try to ask him? No. To get him to come to Google? No, I didn't. You know, one of the things that surprises me, because you and Steve had a great friendship. You even started a fund together at Kleiner, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, we did. The iFund. The iFund. $100 million fund? $100 million fund. That's a great story. Yeah. All of this worked together, but you never formally. I never
0: wanted anything from Steve. I wasn't asking him for anything. He and but I But he never
1: wanted you to invest? You guys never wanted to do business together in that capacity where you were an investor in I wasn't at Kleiner at the time mm. that Kleiner,
0: like many other VCs, passed on Apple. We did consider investing in Next. Floyd Kwame was a partner at Kleiner at the time and very close to Steve. We passed on that investment. God knows an investment in Apple. Apple was within two quarters of bankruptcy when Steve stepped in. When the board realized it and made a mistake in firing him, they acquired Next to get them an operating system. Steve told me, you know, John, I had to vastly streamline the company. I very nearly had to fire everybody with an odd badge number, take out about half the expenses. And he then simplified the business, invented the iPod, but... His master innovation was in 2005 with the iPhone, which was announced in 2006. And I, I vividly remember he and I one, I think it was a fall afternoon. We're walking in Palo Alto to a soccer game for our kids. And he said, John, I want to show you something. that nearly killed the company. And this was unusual. He never showed me advanced products, but he pulled out of his jeans an iPhone 1. Remember that? bulky, small device. And I said, it nearly killed the company. Why is that? And he said, well, this has five radios in it all working together at the same time. Cellular, data, GSM, CDMA, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi. And there may be another one that I've forgotten. And so I turned it over and looked at the back of it and it said 8 GB. I said, it's got eight gigabytes of flash in it. What are you going to do with that, Steve? And he said you know, that's 100,000 songs or 10,000 movies. And I said, Steve, it'd be amazing for you to store programs there. Why don't you let third parties write applications for the iPhone? And, and I'd like to create a fund to fund them. He said, no, I am not interested in having third parties pollute my phone with their applications. They can write applications in HTML5, which, as you know, is a kind of scripting language. that doesn't perform very well. And so the iPhone one shipped with no app store, no app strategy. I said to Steve, if you change your mind, do call back because this is the next great platform. Now, I wasn't telling him anything he didn't know. I think the APIs for the first version of the operating system weren't well hardened. They hadn't been well constructed. He wasn't ready for an app store then. But the next spring, I got a phone call from Steve summoning me down to Cupertino. He said, let's talk about the App Store and the iPhone. I'll cherish this memory forever. When Steve announced the App Store APIs, we also announced together the iPhone. He was pretty seriously ill at the time, and I declared him to be the prime mover of the rebel forces who were going to create a whole new kind of economy. And so Kleiner dedicated and invested $100 million in iPhone apps just at the same time that we launched some of our investing in climate, Climate Tech
1: 1.0. When you think of someone that you want to get in trouble with, is he one of the first people that comes to mind? Oh, th- that would be great. I think working for Steve would be a challenge, but <laughs> work, working with him. Does that give you inspiration now? You know, you work harder than ever. I mean, it's unbelievable. And seeing Steve at that point in his life, working so hard, caring so deeply. He was
0: amazingly focused. I tried to persuade him to make a car. I thought an ample car would be a great thing. And he said, no, John. (laughs) His ability to say no and be right about saying no, I think was one of his great gifts, but more than any entrepreneur that I've met, he lived at the intersection of the arts and the sciences, creativity and big scale execution. And I dearly wish he was with us today. He loved his family. He loved his company. And there wasn't time in his life for anything other than those two great loves.
1: Your family today, you have a sign. I don't know if it's still in your office, but I think it says something along the lines of family, family first. And you've talked about having personal OKRs around being at home for dinner 20 nights out of the week. Well, that'd be impossible, but 20 nights a month. That's what I meant. 20 nights (laughs) out of the month. 20 nights out of the month. Yep. Why'd you do that? I've heard also you turn the modem off when you get home no internet. So it wasn't the quantity of time, but also the quality of time. You talked about Steve and his family and his work. It reminds me of you. Well, it's really clear that families that have dinners together
0: and meaningful kinds of conversations are healthier families. You got better outcomes, more love and more joy. And so that's true. Family first is, I think, the way to make decisions in life. It's something that the Kleiner partnership deeply embraces as a value. And I'm a memory keeper and memory maker. I went through one year in this flurry of entrepreneurship and venture capitalist, and I looked back on that year, and I, I had no idea what really happened. So I resolved to try to take a picture every day, which became easier when the smartphone came along, to be able to share some of the joy and memories of life. Anne and I have two amazing daughters, strong-willed, independent young women now who are pursuing their own lives and careers. And I came from a really great family. My dad, Lou Dore, I've talked about him, my mom, they said, we're going to give you a gift that no one can ever take away from you. And that's a fine education, nothing else, but a great education. And what you do with it is what will matter.
1: How proud would your daughters be of you now, given the challenges that they put on you to go fix the problem that they told you, you, you and your generation started it with climate? Well, the work that you're
0: doing—I talk about that in this book, Speed and Scale. My daughters are still scared and angry. They are still right that my generation created this problem, and my generation hasn't fixed it. And the hard truth is that I don't think my generation will. I think it's going to. What I say to them now is, it's going to take Mary, Esther, my generation, and yours together to get us a habitable planet. We got to cut the carbon reduction. We've got to cut the carbon emissions by 50% between now and 2030. That's what the science tells us. 2030 is only seven years from now. And we got to reduce net carbon emissions to zero by 2050. That's a tall order.
1: It is. You and Bill Gates have done a lot together on this effort, correct? Yes. I only equate you guys in my my head as friends. It wasn't always that (laughs) way. Is that true? Microsoft is one of the great investments that I missed,
0: unfortunately. TVI, Dave Marquardt, led the investment in that company.
1: You missed it, meaning, sorry to interrupt you, but you saw it, passed on it, or missed it, it just didn't even come across your plate? Didn't even come across my plate. Which one hurts more? What do you mean, which one hurts more? Would you rather see a deal and pass on it, or never see the deal? Like in Microsoft's case, you know. So you passed on Tesla and Elon. Does that hurt more, Or does not seeing the Microsoft deal hurt more? I
0: don't think you can invest in every great company in a sector of the economy. And we were lucky to back Lotus and Compaq and Sun and Symantec and Intuit. And Microsoft chose to compete with most of those companies. And oftentimes Microsoft won. They were very powerful. They had very good people work. Netscape, for example, they crushed Netscape.
1: And so Bill was the status quo. You were trying to disrupt the status quo. And so there was a little bit of a thing.
0: In most cases, but in other cases, Intuit, for example, had pioneered personal finance. Sure. And Microsoft decided they wanted to introduce money and get in the personal finance business. And then they decided they wanted to buy it, And the Justice Department said they didn't like that idea. And so mostly I was in the business of trying to help entrepreneurs be successful. Mostly I advised them not to try to compete with Microsoft. (laughs) I think the way I put it is only damn fools stand in front of oncoming trains, but that doesn't much matter. Microsoft chose to compete and consumers got served. I started working with Bill on education reform and then global poverty. This is outside of the Kleiner work, but my family, my wife actually funded Khan Academy and Bill really believed in online education. He became a limited partner of Kleiner. He'd come down every year and review portfolio companies. He'd co-invest with us. And so we've had a very energetic and productive partnership and friendship for a long time. It was maybe seven years ago that he decided and announced that he was gonna make the climate crisis a personal priority of his, not the work of his foundation, which is amazing. Let's not lose sight of the fact Bill Gates is the world's greatest philanthropist. He's doing really amazing work with his well-deserved and earned fortune. But Bill said, if we cure all these diseases but have an inhabitable planet, what have we done? And so for many years, he was quite keen on learning about all of the Kleiner climate and green-related investments. And at the time of the Paris Accord, He and I had been lobbying to quintuple federal funding and research in climate and in climate solutions. He went around to the world's governments and got them all at the time of the Paris Accords to double their investments. And they naturally looked to him and said, you're the wealthiest person in the world. What what are you going to do about this? And he said he'd create a breakthrough energy investment initiative. He asked me to be on the board of it. I shared with him the work that we'd done at Kleiner in the interests. And so I deeply admire what Bill and his team and consider myself part of that are trying to do.
1: Another guy you'd want to get in trouble with? Yeah. This thread of wanting to get in trouble with people. Is there a word? Is there a common denominator of all of these people? A trait?
0: I think they're all disruptors. I think they all imagine a world very different from the world we're in right now. And so
1: that's what comes first to mind. Would you say Steve Jobs is a disruptor? I think there is something to be said about the imagination. Yes. But I split that from the way that they can bend the world to their will to meet their imagination. Mm -hmm. That's the trait that I, when I think of Steve, that comes to mind for me, is a grand vision Yes, and then an ability to execute so ruthlessly against that vision that the world seemingly just unfolds for that person. So Thomas Edison said,
0: vision without execution is hallucination. And Andy Grove, who was a mentor of mine, I'll never forget, he once turned to me and said, you know, John, it doesn't matter what you know. What matters is what you do, what you accomplish. And so my mantra has been that I worship at the altar of innovation, but relatively speaking, ideas are easy. As you say, Jubin, execution is everything. And so helping teams achieve operating excellence, helping them achieve their goals, that's the right role for John Doerr or for a servant venture capitalist, for a Kleiner partner.
1: Did you ever worry, John, when things were going so well for you that you would lose the feedback loops? Most people don't know. The green funds actually put in a billion, returned $3 billion. Actually, it was pretty good. Like we get a pretty bad rap for it, but it's pretty good. That said, there was still probably a lot of decisions that maybe you wouldn't have made in hindsight. I just wonder, do you ever get nervous about cultivating self-awareness when people don't want to tell John Doerr no? People don't want to question your judgment or decision-making because of your pedigree. Does that ever come to mind?
0: It hasn't recently, and so that's a good warning for me to think about. I'm an engineer from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm an eldest of five kids, but you don't learn while you're talking. I would much rather listen and enjoy learning from a network of honest friends who will be critical, self-critical, critical of me. I think a healthy partnership is one where people are peers. They all have the same vote on a way forward. And the successes I've been able to enjoy, the amazing entrepreneurs I've worked with, that's all been because of feedback from others. I'm a sucker for the new, for learning, for reading, and excited to see the world belatedly come around to the recognition that we've got a plan to solve the climate crisis. Let's get after it.
1: John, there's a story that I wanted to ask you about. There's a guy named Brian Roberts, At Comcast. (laughs) Guy, he's the CEO. (laughs) Do you know who that is? Yes, I do. He's the son of the
0: founder and chairman. He is the chairman now.
1: Yes. There's a story. I don't actually know the story, but I have heard that basically this story was telling a tale of how you would go out of your way to help your portfolio companies at any point get a deal done. And I just know that Brian was a part of one of these stories.
0: Well, let me tell you about it. The story is the at-home story. Do you remember the internet before there were cable modems in people's homes?
1: Not really. No, you don't. Not really.
0: Okay, so you would dial up to the internet, to America Online, or as we would say, America On Hold, through a 14.4 modem with a phone line kind of a connection. And there wasn't video on the internet. People optimized the early pages of the Amazon service so it would load quickly. Snappiness was an important parameter. And I met some entrepreneurs who had a cable modem company. And they wanted to use cable modems to get faster internet, and not slightly faster, thousand times faster internet into people's homes. And I saw an opportunity to build a national network of cable modems or faster internet into homes. And so Vinod Khosla and I set out to meet all the CEOs of all the phone companies. And Vinod was a partner, a KP partner at the time. That's right. He took on working with the newspaper industry and the regional bell operating companies to see if we could build a plan to build a national network. And I said, well, I'll sign up for talking to the cable guys. And with a former friend of mine from then Intel, Bruce Ravenel, who was at TCI, Kleiner Perkins did a 60-30 deal with John Malone, who ran the biggest cable company, to get seven-year exclusive access to their infrastructure to deliver high-speed internet into American homes. And of course, John Malone was famous for having backed Ted Turner and John Hendricks of the Discovery Channel, very pro-entrepreneurial risk-taker, quite different than the people who were running the phone companies. They were regulated, very conservative, to make a long story short, they didn't want to go with our new co, our new plan idea. But we knew that we needed more than TCI. And the next biggest cable company out there was Comcast. And so I recruited a founder, Milo Medine, and Milo and I flew through the night to help assure Brian Roberts that if he took his precious resource, all of his valuable cable modem customers and also signed a seven-year exclusive agreement with us that we could build a national network. He could serve on the board of directors of the company and the cable guys would crush the phone companies with an amazingly good service. So I made that call. He took the meeting. He signed up. Everybody feared John Malone, but also wanted to be in on his deal. And of course, as things turned out, Brian Roberts became the biggest cable operator. He acquired AT&T's business. And the estimate today is that if you take the market value of all the cable companies in the U.S. and all of them except one signed up in the at-home relationship, that about 80% of their value today is their internet services, both for consumers and businesses. So another Kleiner partner, Will Hurst, was the founding CEO together with Milo Medine and that was a
1: pretty amazing story. There are countless stories of you like this, John. It made me actually start to think about your time, and I was just wondering, like, where does this time go? If you think back to your calendar during the heydays of how much time would you spend looking at new deals versus how much time would you spend helping your portfolio versus how much time would you spend learning and educating to have a prepared mind when you see a new deal, you have a like rough split of how that time would be spent?
0: Yes, I, in fact, I was very disciplined about time, and I'd track both the budget and my actual performance against plan. And then I would have my team help manage my time. The only way I got home for dinner by six p.m., six thirty, I think it was, twenty nights a month was to have real discipline around my time. And I, while I'd have to look exactly at the data, I'll tell you that roughly I spent equal amounts of time on looking at the new and servicing the now. I thought the work was only beginning once we made a commitment or an investment to a team. And I would work with companies and stay on their boards for a long time, for 20 years or more, if I felt we were
1: adding value. Well, John, I've already taken more time than I deserve, so thank you. I always conclude these the same way. What does the word grit mean to you?
0: Grit for me means loyalty and service and staying power. I think the notion that Jim Collins speaks about so eloquently of servant leadership. The most successful service organizations, if you look around, tend to resemble their clients. McKinsey, for example, looks a lot like the CEOs that they serve. They dress the same way, they talk the same way. There's lots of ways to succeed, I think, in entrepreneurship and in venture capitalists, I think those VCs who have had the grit, have had the hard personal experience of making or missing a payroll, of having voluntary salary reduction programs so you can get through a tough time, I think are more likely to do well by doing good for others. That's what I believe.
1: John Doerr, episode 100, at the office. What a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production, and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.